este în economia partidei Delgado, acolo este Gene Simmons' background is probably the most interesting of all the members of KISS. His embodies the sense of the American dream, the ethos upon which the United States is built. All are welcome but what is made of the opportunities is up to the skills and abilities of the individual and their willingness to work hard. Add into the American cauldron a pinch of the Machiavellian concept of fortuna, or just plain luck. All have the same freedom to succeed, though perhaps not the same opportunities. Yet there is also a certain amount of indecision the young man went through before he finally found his purpose and path, something which has seldom affected the man since. On August the 25th, 1949, Gene Simmons entered the world. Perhaps we should rephrase that and say only that on that date, the world was graced with his presence. Whichever you prefer, he was decades away from becoming the Gene Simmons the world recognizes today. Chaim Witz was born in Haifa, Israel, the former British mandatory Palestine, and a territory faced with fear and uncertainty. The fledgling country would spend its first years of existence stubbornly fighting for its very right to exist at a time when the 1948 Arab-Israeli War had only then recently concluded. Jean's mother came from Jand, Hungary, and while she survived the Holocaust, she had witnessed its fullest horrors, including her own mother joining her grandmother in the gas chambers so that she would not face death alone. While the Nazis didn't arrive in eastern Hungary until April 1944, Jews there had been victims of discrimination laws, modeled on Germany's Nuremberg laws, which stripped them of their rights and livelihood. Jews from the surrounding areas, including Jand, were first segregated in the Jewish ghetto in Nuragaza, before being moved to the Auschwitz or Ravensbrück concentration camps. Some possible records suggest that she was transferred from Ravensbrück to Flossenburg concentration camp on January the 15th, 1945, where she was assigned to work at the Venus Works Junkers factory near Venusburg. She was later transported to Mauthausen on April the 14th as the war rapidly reached conclusion. Following the war, Flora returned home to find her family home taken over by strangers. She met her future husband at a youth Zionist group and the two soon married. Too soon, she later suggest, having not gotten to know him well enough beforehand. The couple joined thousands of other refugees in fleeing the ruins of post-war Europe. Having lost most of her family in the concentration camps, she went from one fight for survival to another. The couple essentially had to sneak into the blockaded British Mandate Palestine. While his mother didn't speak directly about the Shoah, Jean has continued to support Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem, and has learned what he can about his mother's experiences. As reported in The Hollywood Reporter in 2017, during a tribute to his mother, Jean spoke strongly. He said, I quote, The Holocaust and World War II happened yesterday, and if we don't pay attention to that, we are doomed to repeat it. That means hate speech, any hate speech directed at any person, different nationality, different culture, is actually a threat to you because you can say, oh, it's them, but you're next. 
you're also a them. I'm a them. We're all a them to somebody. We better wake up to that idea. End quote. Understandably, Jean's mother wouldn't speak about the Holocaust. Asked by a young journalist once about her story, Flora replied simply, I can never unlock that door and bring up those memories, because if I did, I would go crazy and never come back. It should be noted that later KISS guitarist Tommy Thayer's late father was involved in the liberation of the Gunskirchenlager concentration camp on May the 4th, 1945. It was part of the Mauthausen complex and housed thousands of Hungarian Jews. Following their arrival in Israel, Jean's father went into the army while Florence was exempted due to her pregnancy. It was a harsh life, and the family was poor. Flora recalled in an issue of the Kiss Explorer fanzine, There was no money to buy things. I made Jean's first winter coat from an army blanket. Jean's father, Ferry Weitz, a carpenter also from Hungary, was an imposing figure. Jean's early memories of him revolve around his role as a soldier. Jean recalled in his autobiography, Kiss and Make Up. I remember that my dad, Yechiel, or Ferry Witz, who was physically imposing, oh, at least six foot five, would come in on the weekends with his machine gun and put it on the kitchen table. The front lines were 50 miles away, and everybody, every male and most females, was in the army. There were no exceptions. If you lived there, you were in the army. The gun on the table was one of the few things I remember about my father, because he wasn't around very much. I do recall that he was this large, powerful being with a large, powerful presence. Jean's early years were spent in the small village of Tirat Har Carmel, south of Haifa, on the west coast of the country. The village was located below the biblical Mount Carmel, which he would often climb and explore in search of sweet cactus fruit. He would then sell these at a local bus depot. Jean's Sabra business demonstrated more than just an early entrepreneurial spirit. As a young boy of six, I wanted to show my mother that I loved her. I wanted to give her money. And to get money, I had to earn it. So I went up into the hills of Mount Carmel, where I lived in Israel, and picked cactus fruit that grew wild in the hills. Cactus fruit has prickles all over it on the outside and is very sweet on the inside. Perhaps an apt analogy for who and what I am. Israelis are called sabres. Sabra is the Hebrew word for cactus fruit. I picked the cactus fruit and asked someone how to get rid of the thorns on the outside. I learned that you floated the cactus fruit in a tub of cold water with ice in it. I hauled a big metallic tub of ice water filled with cactus fruit down to the bus station. I was waiting there when the bus arrived filled with tired workers coming home from a long day on the job. The bus station was on a dirt road. Paved roads were mostly unknown in the Israel of the early 50s. I made a killing selling cactus fruit to the workers. Every cactus fruit sold for a pruta, half a penny, and I made enough money to buy myself a nice lunch, beans and rice, which I always loved. I brought the rest of the money I'd earned that day back home and put it on the table for my mother. And I will never forget it made her cry. It was then I understood the connection between making money and giving it to someone as a way of showing your love. No matter how much I told my mother I loved her, it was the work put in and the money earned that elicited that response. 
Gene's parents divorced in 1955. His father would later remarry, and Gene has multiple half-siblings, including Sharon, Drora, Eugenia, and a brother, Kobe. He met this extended family during the filming of Gene Simmons' Family Jewels in 2011. As a single mother, Flora went to work in a local cafe, Cafe Niza, to make ends meet. On June the 16th, 1958, Gene and Flora, who by then had reverted to her maiden name, Klein, joined two of her surviving brothers in the United States. They arrived in New York City on El Al Flight 201, and the pair went to live with Jean's Uncle Larry and Aunt Magda in the Flushing section of the city. Soon afterwards, Chaim became Jean, and he also took his mother's maiden name. As a single mother, working long hours sewing buttons on jackets, Flora needed somewhere to take care of Jean. She placed him in a Hasidic yeshiva. On NPR in 2002, Jean recalled, Nobody in the family was orthodox, but when I came to America, my mother, being a single mother, had to go out and work from 6 in the morning till 7 at night, so she put me in a yeshiva, which is a Jewish theological seminary. In other words, you're studying to be somebody, and I was studying to be a rabbi. And they fed me and clothed me, and you know, you sort of take care of your child. That way you don't have to worry that your child is on the street. And so while I was there, uh, I saw one world, the closed world, and when I turned on television, people were flying through the air, and they had capes, and there were cartoons, and you know, just amazing things, and I wanted to go there. I thought that was a lot cooler than yarmulkes. As a nine-year-old who didn't speak English, Gene was initially a person apart. He didn't speak the language, and everything about America, from the signs to the stores to the streets, the culture, left him in awe. He started to learn English and was quickly assimilating into his new environment. During the summers, Gene spent more time with the television cartoons and serials such as Planet Patrol, The Vikings, and the obligatory Superman had a great impact on his learning the language of his adopted country. Some of these images would also be seared in his psyche for years to come. After often being mocked for his thick ethnic accent, he started picking up the distinct diction of the actors whom he watched on the television screen. But television wasn't just entertainment, and the show's plots often served as a guide to all that was possible for the impressionable young man. On NPR in 2002, Gene recalled, At eight and a half years of age, when I came over to America with my mother, it was like being thrown into another dimension. I had never heard of Santa Claus or Christ or Christmas, never knew anything about Christians or that there were other kinds of people. And from then on, I became a sponge. I wanted to just take it all in. It was just way beyond anything I could ever imagine. And television, the great television, and rock and roll, and horror movies, and science fiction, and comic books were my education. And I thank God that those were what I learned instead of having to read Jane Eyre at an early age, because it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything I could relate to. After a year in the yeshiva, Gene moved to Jackson Heights in Queens, where he would attend public school. Another media format that interested and assisted Gene, not only in helping him learn English, but because the imagery caught his attention, was comic books. He knew Superman, but soon discovered other superheroes, such as Batman. These provided a whole new imaginary environment with which to be immersed and entertained. These also played an important part in his life for many years to come. Again, demonstrating a natural entrepreneurial spirit, he would trade and buy other children's used comics to build his own collection, selling on copies to make money. 
He recalled, After school, everybody would hang out in the schoolyard and smoke cigarettes and get into trouble. I'd run home, turn on the television set, and do my homework, and I was set. I was back doing what I loved. In fact, not only did I not hang out after school, but I hardly ever had visitors come over to my house, because when they did come over, I'd ignore them and just watch TV. My house was not a fun place to go to. All I had were comic books and science fiction and fantasy magazines. The other guys were interested in bikes and baseball bats and going outside and doing sporty things. They were chewing gum and spitting, and they'd start talking in hushed tones about Mickey Mantle. And I tried, maybe for a little while, but I found that I just couldn't care at all. Mickey Mantle next to Superman? Hands down, Superman. Are you kidding? Mickey Mantle couldn't fly. Tuesdays and Thursdays were the most exciting days of the week, because that's when the new comic books came into the candy store, and I'd be there as soon as I could. The store owner knew me by name, and he would tell me what was coming up and ask if he should save me a copy. Fantastic Four, Thor, and all of those movie magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland. Soon I had a stack of comics and magazines higher than me. In fact, my comics collection became the basis for my next business. My mother had gotten me a mimeograph machine, which I used to publish those science fiction and fantasy fanzines, and soon it occurred to me that I could use the same machine to make some money. I started printing up flyers that said, Willing to Buy Comic Books, with my phone number on them. I had a set price, a dollar a pound, and that meant that I would get between 50 and 100 comic books for a dollar. The people who were selling to me didn't have the expertise or the energy to go through the collections themselves, so I would look through thousands of issues, and usually I would find one or two books that were genuine collectibles. One collector's comic book could fetch me a hundred bucks. An additional connection that developed from his interest in comics, Gene soon became a fan of horror movies and thrillers after seeing a documentary on the great Lon Chaney. Lon was one of the premier actors of the genre, and he was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces due to his ability to play numerous characters and roles. Attending Joseph Pulitzer Middle School, Gene started publishing his own comic book fanzine, Cosmos. It later merged with another fanzine to become Cosmos Stiletto. Gene also participated in additional titles, including Fawn and Tinderbox. He also contributed writing to many others. Gene was given encouragement by Jack Gaughan, the artist for the science fiction Amazing Stories series and If magazines. Most issues of Gene's fanzines were limited to print runs of 150 to 200 copies. Many are still obtainable today and are highly sought after by collectors. The fanzines included movie and pop culture articles and editorials written by him and others, reviews, letters, and some comics and art. They were essentially the podcasts of their time. School friends such as Seth Dogramagian and Stephen Coronel were often involved in these. This interest in horror dominated Gene's life for a time, and he was even nicknamed Buggy at school as a result. Music, too, entered Gene's life. He'd watch the Ed Sullivan show with his mother on Sunday nights. Early on, 
having missed Elvis's early appearance on television, he would have seen the likes of Dave Brubeck, Jerry Lewis, Paul Anka, and Bobby Rydell. He soon became aware of the girls screaming in the audience for the stars of the day, but those early experiences of fan adulation were nothing compared with the reaction a fully pubescent Jean would experience on February the 9th, 1964, along with 73 million fellow Americans. On that day, the United States witnessed the first appearance of the Beatles. Everything suddenly made sense to Jean, and for many, the world changed on that day. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of dogs from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Let's Gene recalled his musical epiphany in an interview with guitar player Steve Rosen in 1978. Quote, A long time ago I saw the same television show that millions of other guitar players saw, one which was probably the single most important television event for the new generation of guitar players, The Ed Sullivan Show. I think it sound like the Bible, don't I? But when I saw the Beatles on that program in 1964, I said, Gee, you don't have to get in line and do stuff like The Temptations. You can pick up a guitar, and you don't have to dance. You certainly don't need a band in back of you, and anybody can do it. I also loved their gimmick. Everybody had the same hairstyle. It was fun. A single image brought the group to the mind right away. You didn't have to think of their faces or who they were. It was just their style. They were a perfect group for the time. They were a step ahead, not too far and their hair was just a little bit longer than everyone else's. Any longer than that, and people would have thought they were bums, but at the time it was just perfect. Also, they played neat-looking guitars. I'd never seen a Rickenbacker guitar or a Hoffner bass before. Everybody I'd seen was playing those big, ugly Fender basses. The Beatles were a compact little band, a terrific-looking band. That was in 64. Gene was soon inspired to start making his own music. Some of Gene's earliest bands were The Missing Links, Rising Sun, The Long Island Sounds. Some of these even performed local high school gigs. The first of these bands had their name transformed from The Missing Links to Lynx, as in the cat, during an erroneous introduction at a high school battle of the bands. In this band, Gene simply sang, though it wasn't long until he was playing an instrument. Two songs, There's a Place, by The Beatles, and Kathy's Clown, by The Everly Brothers, were notable for being the first songs performed by Lynx when they participated in a talent show at Joseph Pulitzer Middle School. Lynx was comprised of Danny Haber and Seth Dogramagian on guitars, with Gene on vocals. The two songs had specifically been chosen because they featured harmonies that enabled all three members to sing. The band won the talent show. Another interesting song in Gene's early repertoire was Hang On Sloopy, which was the first song Gene learned how to play. While Gene may have been playing guitar prior to seeing the Beatles, the TV broadcast made him much more serious about it and music in general. By 1964, Gene had started learning the instrument properly. Gene recalled this first guitar in an interview, again with Steve Rosen and guitar player from 1978. My mother went out and bought me a Kent guitar for $15 from some kid. She bought it secondhand. The app was a premiere with an 8 or 10 inch speaker. 
I used to turn that sucker all the way up to 10. Somebody taught me to do a bar of C and I played Land of a Thousand Dances, Funky Broadway, every song that ever had one chord for the entire song. I'd play the same chord up and down for hours and hours, experimenting with different variations. At the time, that 10-inch speaker was louder than anything in the house. We were kicked out of where we lived. Within a couple of years of picking up the guitar, Gene had started writing his own songs. My Uncle is a Raft, released on his vault in 2018, purportedly dates from around 1966. It was recorded in a friend's basement on a two-track recorder. While awkward and sappy, it certainly was a start. The first two songs I wrote were called Lita, which had Beatles overtones, and My Uncle is a Raft, which sounded like a nitty-gritty dirt band tune. Incidentally, for those of you who are curious about Lita, it was included in the Kiss box set that was released in 2002 and earned gold status. My uncle is a raft and he always what? keeps me floating. <laughs> is a raft and he always keeps me floating <laughs> he is so good to me he treats me tenderly wow that's uh that's uh interesting St stupid <laughs> does that sound better in hebrew <laughs> Yes, it does. A succession of other bands soon followed, including the Long Island Sounds. This band included Seth, Stephen Carnell, Stan Singer, and Alan Graff. It was while he was with this band that Gene started learning how to play the bass. Spending his summers at Surprise Lake Camp, 60 miles north of the city in Cold Springs, Gene didn't consider that the bands he was involved with might have greater prospects within the music industry. He continued to work odd jobs and planned to attend college. Stephen Coronel had grown up with Gene, and the two were good friends by this point. They had several bands together throughout high school, which continued after Gene had graduated. At that time, Gene attended Sullivan County Community College in South Fallsburg, New York, where he earned an associate bachelor's degree. While there, Gene quickly joined an existing band and renamed it Bullfrog Beer. The band I played in, in upstate New York, and I hesitate to say this, was called Bullfrog Beer, B-H-E-E-R. The H was put in for effect. I'm afraid I came up with the name. Though the other band members were more talented musicians than I was, in short order they were playing songs I had written, even though I could barely play guitar. There was already a bass player in the band. I was relegated to sometimes singing lead, sometimes strumming along on guitar. It wasn't my band. I had joined an already existing band, but by virtue of the fact they were playing my songs, it became my band. Again, more popularity, more girls, and more money. My three favorite things. When Gene's guitar player and Bullfrog Beer became unavailable due to sickness or quitting the band, he managed to persuade Stephen to fill in for the summer. During this time, Gene's band even included a girl, 
Anadalva, and the two wrote a song, Moving On Together. This was a song KissRelatedRecordings.com, Gel Jansen, reminded Gene about during his vault experience in Amsterdam. He was treated to an impromptu performance of the song. Moving on, moving on. But I've got people everywhere. People here, people there. Yes, I know there are people everywhere. The band was the normal sort of college band performing covers, but they were also starting to work out original material. This band was active throughout 1968-70 to 70 and played live venues such as the Rockland House in the Catskills. Before long, Stephen and another friend were working with Gene in a band named Cathedral. And uh, we ended up forming a band called Cathedral, and we played, I would say, just about six months to a year or something like that up there. Um, we had a place, we had a house that I got in um, Harris, New York, and uh, Steve and I lived there, and Gene lived over, it, you know, still at the dorm, but he would come over and stay over, just hang, hang at this house, which had no heat in the sun, in the winter, which was insane, and uh, we used to, it had gas heat, but I mean, it was like, it was freezing, and we used to, we cleared out this top the period was not without the sort of drama that one hears about from other bands. Marty recalled, One night we were booked at this place called the Flagler Hotel, which is really like, you know, like a, like a kind of like, you know, Borscht Belt Hotel. And Gene at the time was one of the straightest guys I knew. I mean, when we used to go up, we used to go upstate to go up and play because Steve and I would come down to New York and then sometimes go back upstate to meet Gene to go and play someplace. Sometimes Gene would hitch a ride with us, and the only car that we had was Steve's car, which was a Corvette. So the three of us had to go upstate in a Corvette with me sitting over the gear shift, because Gene was bigger than me. So we used to meet him in, in Queens, you know, and we'd pick him up, like, by, by Parsons Boulevard. I'd go to his house with his mom, you know, his mom would, would you know, fawn over us and stuff, and she, she was a nice lady. We always had fun there. And um, so, she, and she would always make Gene like a like a baggie, you know, a baggie of food to take with him. Because <laughs> he was like a real mama's boy. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was just a real mama's boy. He had no car. He had no no license. He never drove. And uh, and uh, so he'd get in the car with his bag. We'd meet him with his bag, and get in. And Steve and I were were. were, were like hippies, you know, we were already smoking pot. We were, we were, you know, we were doing all kinds of shit, and uh, we'd be carrying sometimes, you know. And we got pulled over one time, with, you know, in the Corvette with the three of us, and uh, and and uh, you know, it was really like a crazy scene with the cops, and it was just, it was just wild. And Steve used to speed for this one area, and they always had speed traps, so they ended up picking us up, and Steve ended up having to go to jail and. Um, Pulling his camera, he had a, I think he had a Canon camera that he had to pawn. 
So anyway, so that was really that was really where Gene was at. He was really not a rock and roll guy by any means, you know. Except for he loved music, you know. He loved to play and he loved music, but, but he how, really how, had a how, life like. How did how did Gene? You know, how did Gene? Paul McCartney, you know, more than anybody else that I can remember. You know, he used to stand on the stage like a like a serious guy, you know, playing like Paul, you know, with his feet together and, you know, facing out to the stage as if he was, you know, like, like Paul McCartney. And um, never jumped around. I was a lunatic. I was the one, you know, that, that would, you know, attract people and be out of control. And... Um, and he really wasn't much of a showman at that time, you know, just just kind of hung out and played. So <laughs> one night we were booked into a place called the Flagler Hotel. And um, it was a New Year's Eve party, and they had a horrible snowstorm up there. And the society band that was supposed to play for all the old people got canceled. So here it is, they got this big ballroom. Nobody, you know, tons of people in there and it's all old people and their kids and their family and shit like that and we're you know we're like 19 years old 18 years old something like that and uh they, they give us this room to stay in and and i drank about a half a bottle of southern comfort before i walked on the stage <laughs> and we walked on and this is and I, I mean i had my hair was down in my ass and, and Steve had this, this big afro, you know, kind of thing. And, and we, and, you know, they keep on putting on the, on the website that we played with a guy named um, Stan Singer. That's not so. A, a guy named Elliot Fine was the drummer with us back then. And he was in Cathedral. It wasn't Stan Singer. Okay, great. That, that's, a real, that's a real correction to that. I don't know who wrote that, but that's not so. So anyway, so and Elliot was kind of a friend of Gene's because he went to Sullivan Community College. So it's it's all fits. So anyway, so um, we cleared before we knew it. We did one song. We did Mississippi Queen with me running around drunk out of my mind. And by the time we finished the song, these people were here for their New Year's Eve party, and there was maybe one person or two people left in the entire auditorium. <laughs> after we finished playing and you know we never we didn't even finish playing that that night there because there was nobody there to watch us we had chased everybody out playing mississippi queen you know and it was you know it was not anything that these people were waiting to hear we better hear from steve about all of that too as i said i grew up with gene for many years and at one point uh you know we were still playing in band together when, when Gene was up at Sullivan County Community College. I used to go up there regularly in my Corvette. As a matter of fact, one time I got arrested on a Sunday morning. I had this big, crazy-looking silver raccoon coat on, whatever the hell it was. And I'm doing 110 miles an hour. I have a brand-new 69 Corvette that my grandfather bought me. 400 horsepower. I was a, uh, uh, what they now call it would have been considered, I think it was a 6.2-liter engine. It's a huge engine. It a 427-cubic-inch engine. And... Uh, Come out of a rise in the New York State Thruway heading up to Gene, and I see fingertips coming up over the rise on, on New York State Thruway. It's a straight ribbon, it's going straight, you know. But there's a swell in the road. So as you're coming up the thing very fast, you see fingertips, then you see the top of a, uh, 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 a beige brim khaki hat, then you see 
plastic sunglasses, then you see the shoulders of a trooper's uniform, and then he's pushing you to go off the, the road to the right, and I said, oh shit, I'm caught. And I pull over, and lo and behold, there's five or six other cars, just like me, Camaros, uh, Mustangs, you know, all sitting there already, like like insects on a, on a fly trap, I swear to God, it was a, you had to laugh. <laughs> well, he decided to pick me out for some reason, maybe because I was the fastest one, I don't know. But he decided to take me in his squad car, and he's very nice with me. He says, you know, he says, I could have caught you because he had a Dodge Charger. The state troopers back then had Dodge Charger, and they had a 440 cubic inch engine in there. So he says, I could have caught you, even in the vet. So, we're, you know, like, we're nice already with each other, even though he's older than me. He takes me to the judge's house in Goshen, New York, which is, you know, like a couple of miles south of there. And we go in the back door of the judge's house. Little, uh, uh, like a one-story ranch house, you know, a long linear ranch, probably a three-bedroom ranch house, right? The judge, and this is about, I'm going to say, 11.15, 10.45, Sunday morning. The judge opens the door, and he's got a red plaid bathrobe on, and slippers. Oh, God. <laughs> and I'm an 18-year-old. Yeah, oh God is right. And I'm an 18 year old kid with his wild hair, big bushy head of hair, and his raccoon, crazy looking coat on, with the trooper. So he says, What do we got here? And he addresses the officer, whatever his name is. What do you got here? And he tells him that there's 110 miles. He says, Well, that, that's going to be $95. And I didn't have $95. I had about $40 on me, I think. So they said, Well, we're going to have to take you down to the jail fund. He says, Okay. So they take me down to the Goshen jail. They removed to this bill, they removed my belt and my shoelaces. And this is like Alice's Restaurant, you know, by Old Guthrie. Oh, yeah. And I look at them and I say, why are you taking my shoelaces and my belt? Well, we have to, it's state regulation. I said, yeah, but why are you taking them? You don't hang yourself. Over a ticket. <laughs> yeah, over a ticket. I said, I'm going to hang myself from the speeding ticket. So, they allow you one phone call. Of course, I called Gene up at Sullivan County. He was waiting for me. And I said, listen, I got arrested for speeding. Why were you speeding? Why were you going so fast? I said, blah, 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 blah. I said, what, what, can you do something? He says, well, what about if I hide, uh, I'll, 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 um, I had my Nikon camera up there. I had a you know, top of the line Nikon camera. My grandfather bought me. So he hocked it temporarily at the, at the uh, cafeteria in the, in the school. He got the $90 up. And about 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, he comes down to get me out of jail. In the meantime, I'm sitting in a jail cell all by myself, with the steel bars. He took away my shoelaces and my belt. They gave me a great meal, but I gotta tell you, on a steel plate, you know, the stainless steel plate, they don't give you a fork because you might stab yourself and kill yourself. They give you a spoon. They give you pork chops, mashed potatoes, and bread, and corn. I ate this all of the spoon. So I'm saying, this is really crazy. So Gene comes in, I hear him in the front. He starts to walk towards the back, so I come up to the bars to look out to you know, see him coming at me. He sees me with my head stuck between the bars. And he starts to, he points at me and he starts to laugh his head off. I said, very fucking funny. He says, get me out of here, will you please? So he got me out of here and we went back up to the thing. And that was the end of the story. This band remained relatively active until Gene transferred to Richmond College in Staten Island. It was there that he changed his degree major from journalism to education. While he had originally intended to become a teacher, after receiving his degree and teaching briefly, he decided that it was not the right career path for him. He recalled, When I graduated college, I 
had gone into teaching because initially I thought I wanted to convey knowledge, but I really didn't. Uh, it was purely ego infatuation. I thought if I got in front of people, that I'd have a captive audience, and uh, that's, the, that's really the wrong reason to be a teacher. So I quickly got out of that. I taught for about six months in a public school system uh, in Spanish Harlem, and uh, I soon realized that I didn't want to teach. I simply wanted to be on stage, and I wanted people to look at me and listen to every single utterance that comes out of my precious mouth. Gene was becoming a prolific writer during this period. During 1969, Gene brought his band to New York City to record some demos at Richcraft, which was one of the several small Brooklyn recording studios, like Sanders Recording Studio, which Gene used as a place to record material cheaply. With my hobby, music, I instinctively knew that the next step was going into the recording studio and seeing what the songs I had written sounded like. Like other small studios, Richcraft pressed vanity recordings, including a series of choir records for a local school. One song recorded at this time was the eclectic Stanley the Parrot. While a high-quality version of this song has yet to surface, a transfer from the 10-inch acetate is good enough to provide audio evidence of the diversity of the young demon. Where the later connection with Kiss's strutter comes from is not always immediately apparent to the listener. Supposedly, the chord progression pattern forms the part. It's probably better to let the song speak for itself.
It's also interesting to note that the rich craft acetate had a B-side, the exquisite Lita, which illustrated many of Jean's roots in a tight arrangement. It's a very McCartney-esque piece. It was once thought that the musical backing for him on that song was the trained musician and pianist William Brooke Ostrander. Fortunately, that has recently been disproven and the song was likely recorded in the summer of 1970. Whatever the case, during the early part of 1970, Brooke and Gene were actively recording together, usually using Brooke's four-track recorder at his apartment. The initial idea was to record Gene's best material to date to serve as a demo for prospective music publishing, or perhaps even a record deal. Songs such as Little Lady, Nancy, Eskimo Sun, and Put On Your Slippers were among those recorded. These can now be heard on Gene Simmons' 2018 Vault Collection. Gene sent his 12-song demo out to Prospects with a terse cover letter that stated, The purpose of this thing is to show you what I have. Some of the songs didn't include drums, as Gene noted, for reasons having to do with the clarity of the tape. However, it's more likely that this was due to their recording methodology with Brooke. These were quick and dirty demos, even if some do sound quite adequate. Unfortunately, or fortunately as we look back in hindsight with 2020 vision, Gene wouldn't generate enough interest in his material as a solo artist, and in most cases the material was rejected outright with a brutal pass. But having worked together, Gene and Brooke placed an ad in the Village Voice for a guitarist as they sought to develop a band project through which to develop more material. In Sex, Money, Kiss, Gene recalled, I started writing more songs and decided to demo them up. Demo is short for demonstration tape. Brooke Ostrander, who taught music in a public school, also had recording equipment and played keyboards. He helped me put together a demo tape of my songs, which I took and dutifully went knocking on record company doors, trying to get a recording contract as a solo artist. In those days, my name was Gene Klein, because Klein was my mother's maiden name. No one bit. I didn't get a solo recording contract. I thought the next step might be to put a band together to show people that these songs actually worked live and that a band was viable. That we'll discuss a bit later, but Gene summed up where he was at by mid-1970 in Kiss and Make Up. College was a great experience. 
My musical career was coming along. My experience with women was proceeding to my liking. But when I got my associate bachelor's degree and my time at Sullivan County ended, I moved back to New York City, back in with my mother, and then went to school at Richmond College in Staten Island, which was part of the New York City University system. I was finishing up my education, getting my degree, which was part of my deal with my mother, but in my heart, I was planning how to make it in a rock band. When I first started playing in bands, we were following in the footsteps of a class of bands slightly older than us that had already made names for themselves. Billy Joel's first band, The Hassles, were already local heroes, and I was aware of them. I was aware of The Pigeons, who would later become Vanilla Fudge. I was aware of Aesop's Fables and The Vagrants. In general, these bands were Guido Mods, Italian versions of English bands. They had shag haircuts and thick New York accents, and emulated the prevailing fashion, which was dictated by bands like The Who and The Kinks and The Faces. Imagine a guy named Tony trying to be Rod Stewart, and you'll understand that scene pretty well. For the most part, having a band was simply a tool for getting access to other things, mainly girls. Still, I was lucky in that I was in bands with friends who were obsessive record collectors. Stephen, for example, bought records like crazy, and he listened to everything from the Ventures to obscure British invasion bands to Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Gene's story continues in Episode 5, Over the Rainbow. She's the one I adore She can drink more than all other girls in Spain She's not like the rest She's one of the best She's not like the rest and I will protest to them any day. They'll come up to my room. 